everyone welcome back on this week's episode we got the opportunity to talk with sharon hall right before her massive hundred and forty thousand dollar breeders challenge win she's already had a fairy tale year but sharon's career has been full of ups and downs that she's had to persevere through this million dollar rider shared how her training career has evolved over the years and how she's really been able to enjoy the little moments we can't wait to cheer on stella and sharon in the next month and a half to wrap up this record-breaking futurity season as a side note, our new segment, The Short Go, should be posted this week, where Kayla does follow-up interviews with previous guests, and she's already talked to Molly Otto and Amanda Welsh. The Short Go will only be available to those who subscribe to The Money Barrel at Patreon.com. If you're looking for a stallion for your 2022 breeding needs, Kale Limitless and Taking on Shawnee are outstanding picks, and they come with their own incentive program. The KNL Incentive Program matches what you win in any state and in any event. If you're riding a KL Limitless or Taking on Shawnee sired horse, you have the opportunity to win up to $5,000. KNL Barrel Horses wants to put money back in the pockets of the people running foals by their stallion. These foals are user-friendly horses that are trainable for all levels of riders. They want to make barrel horses, you won't get outran, they hunt a barrel, and the whole family can enjoy being around them. Go check out their website for updates and get your contract today. That's www.knlbarrelhorses.com. All right, Sharon, you're in the hot seat. Kayla, take it away. This is The Money Barrel. This morning, we are getting the chance to talk to Sharon Hall, a newly minted million dollar rider who um, you've been having one heck of a year this year. Well, thank you. I feel so, very blessed and fortunate. <laughs> thanks, for, thanks for talking with us. How's it been going? Are you home or are you at the fizz bomb? Um, well, thank you again for having me. Um, and no, I am home resting, um, getting ready for the Breeders' Challenge. Weekend, I went back home and um, got to visit all my family and watch my youngest niece get married. Oh, fun. Be able to take yeah. a little bit of break from the fraternity trail. Yes, ma'am. It's been, it's, it was well needed. I'm sure. So tell us a little bit about how your year's been going. Um, anybody who's watched anything of fraternities this year knows about Hello Stella. Um, but tell us a little bit about your year and just how things have been going. Well, um, thank you. I've, I've enjoyed, um, you know, having Hello Stella as a homebred and and to be able to share her success in the arena with her has just been amazing. Um, as far as like my whole year, um, you know, things like life happens. <laughs> um, so last year when Co I'll start with last year with COVID, um, I had a couple horses of my own that I was going to futurity. And then when all that hit, I just decided I'm going to, sell, which is the perfect opportunity to downsize. So I did, I sold both of the bolts, um, sold some brood mares and young prospects and just really stayed home. And I had Hello Stella, and, uh, Rocket Fire to Fame, a stallion um, owned by Marie Borgman. And then I also started um, Hot Traffic Pursuit for Charmaine bronze so uh anyway i had those three and i just stay homed and camped on them got them ready for the beginning of this year and um 
uh, through, I think, the Oklahoma City um, with the hot traffic pursuit stud. And then he went home and went to another trainer. And then um, I had hot, uh, hot Rod, which is Rocket Fire to Fame. I had him until uh, Fort Smith. So then it's just been Stella and I for the rest of the year. That's got to make things a little easy. You go to a barrel race, you have one horse, that's it. <laughs> I am not used to that. <laughs> yeah, it's all. probably like. Um, but I tell you, it's really made me um, a better rider because you don't have multiple chances. You know, if you mess up, you, you got to get it right the first time. So it's been good and challenging for me as well. So talk us through kind of the year. I mean, it's kind of nice to hear that you are home. I mean, it kind of goes to show that you don't have to go to every big barrel race because um, obviously the Fizz Bomb has a ton of added money and I'm sure Stella would do well, but you um, obviously pick and choose a little bit about where you go. I, I have tried this year um, with all these new and stallion incentive programs um, and races. It's really opened up um, the opportunity to go all year long versus, you know, kind of get through Fort Smith and then your home all summer. So, um, you know, I'm not riding as many outside horses. So I was able, when I did go up north, like to your futurity and went to Colorado, I mean, I ended up staying for you know, two or three fraternities in a row to make it worth my time to drive that far. And I was able to just throw in my three-year-olds um, and drag them around and kind of keep them going um, where most people are having to get back home to ride, you know, a whole string of horses. So it's it's been, um, I've been wanting to get to this point actually for about 10 years. <laughs> and it's, it's, I feel like it's finally here. And so I'm just trying to enjoy my journey. And you own Hello Stella, correct? Right. You bred her, raised her. Yes, ma'am. I sure did. did. Tell us a little bit about her story. Um, because I know you also ran her mom. So, you know, it's kind of cool to see it all just come full circle. Yes. Thank you. Um, I have, uh, like, I don't know, Gogo and I just like, I was obsessed with that mare when Christy Gaffney sent her to me, oh, shoot, um, as a late two-year-old, and I trained her her three-year-old year, I campaigned her through Fort Smith, I did hit some barrels to win a lot of money, <laughs> so uh, she made a rider change, and I Schaefer ran her at the end of the year and did well with her at the BFA and and then that next summer I was heading up to the Nebraska Cornhusker fraternity that next year and I just called Christy and I was like hey <laughs> will you sell me go-go I just love that mare and she was like yeah we'll work it out so we did and I've had her ever since and um, I kind of had a partner, you know, for a little while there and I got through that disillusion. And, um, so now I so solely own her and then I had pulled some embryos, you know, early and Gogo was, um, the very first one. Well, Christy pulled one, which is BC Gogo Fling that Pete campaigned and she did real well. And then Stella is her second one. So I okay. think I pulled up her report the other day. I think GoGo's produced like a hundred and I don't know eighty 
thousand, you know, as a few weeks ago, but I think Stella's right at 200 now. So Gogo's a hundred percent producer. So I'm just super proud of her and, and just knew that she had just this it, but she's also out of a great producing Mare Volley 6. Um, so I think that Mare power really, really is important and has a lot to do with the success in the arena with the offspring. That's really cool that, I mean, you were able to kind of know the mom, decide to buy her. How did you decide to cross her on the goodbye lane? That is a great question. And I have to give Bob Burt <laughs> the credit for that because um, I think Gogo was, I think it was that fall. I don't, I don't know if Gogo was five or six at the time, but I had went to the first Glenwood Memorial Fraturity and Mark Jarvis was actually there running it, and Bob Burt was in the stand. So I always love to pick that man's brain. And I said, so, Bob, who are you going to breed all your Dash to Fame mares to? <laughs> and he was like, oh, this Lane's Lannister stud down the road. <laughs> and so anyway, I had to find out. And so I bought a breeding, and um, I did ask Mark, this is funny, he'll probably laugh, but I said, so do you give mayor considerations to, you know, one that's won like 30, 40,000? He was like, no. And I was like, okay. <laughs> so <laughs> I bred and uh, Stella is, is the result of that. And of course that's it was way cheaper than what he is now. So I feel very fortunate. Yeah. So cool. And then how was it um, breaking her training her? She's four this year, right? I should know yes. this. But. Yep. She is four. You know, um, I had, uh, I actually, I didn't break her. Um, Dakota Bingham had kind of put a few rides on her um, before he went back home. And then um, Emily Nicase, um, she stayed with me one went that winter that she was two coming three. So I just had her ride that whole group of Colts and I said, just get them really broken. So anyway, after about a month or so, I asked her, you know, Hey, how did Stella ride today? And she was like, Oh, I didn't ride her. And I was like, what? And she goes, she don't need it. That horse is already trained. <laughs> so honestly, she's just been a natural from day one. Like she had that, come around on the backside on her own and she just I think she's just a born barrel horse I I would agree she sure looks like it when you watch her run mm, thank you so what's the rest of your year look like with her well um you know I'm, uh, what's on the schedule is um the breeders challenge next week which I feel like is going to be one of the big ones for the year um, and then as of right now, I'm qualified for the WCRA. So oh. um, I haven't really, um, I'm just now starting to plan like what that would look like. But um, I think that's a pretty cool concept to be able to nominate um, towards that association while you're, you know, at your futurity. So I think it's I think that's pretty cool. Um, and then let's see, I have Ardmore after the Breeders' Challenge. And then I believe we're resting until Pink Buckle. And then I haven't decided about uh, the regional Ruby Buckle in Tennessee yet, but it's kind of on the radar. 
I mean, that is just kind of crazy because you said that Stella is close to 200000 in earnings. And there's a lot of money left on the table. There is a lot left. I mean, that's um, crazy. I try not to focus on that. <laughs> and yeah. I had to learn, um, you know, this year that you just do one, you just take one run at a time. And that's kind of what I've tried to focus on. Well, I can't wait to keep watching her. She's so cool. Thank I you. I kind of jumped right into Stella just because I love her so much and <laughs> wanted to hear her story. Um, but let's just go back and tell us a little bit about your background and how you got into horses and barrel racing and training for dirty horses. Okay. Um, well, I, uh, my dad and my mom both were into horses, um, you know, in the 60s and 70s. And um, I came along and Mom kind of did like the showmanship and the halter stuff. And then my dad um, was into hot rods. And when he met my mom, you know, he kind of got into horses. So he started, he liked the speed events. So he was really good at pole bending and the stake race and stuff like that. And my uncle rode and my brother was very talented um, as a rider and blacksmith and Anyway, I just kind of grew up around horses. Um, I'm the only one left doing it um, now. But um, I, my mom bought me my first um, barrel horse at, I think I was 14. And I took him to the world show um, as a four-year-old and got fourth. And I just thought that was awesome. And then I... Um, I went to Fort Smith with him and I got hooked <laughs> and I ended up buying my first barrel horse when I was 16 years old from Jackie Hobbs. So I bought my first oh. um, two-year-old from her mom, Annette Hobbs, for, at Fort Smith. And I took that mare and did well at fraternities, derbies, and won WPRA rodeos on her. And that's just kind of how I got started. So I've been training my own, really, or fraternity horses since I was 16. And then when I moved out here to Oklahoma in 99, that's when I started riding for the public. Okay. And so you've been doing, like you said, you've been doing it ever since. I have. Um, I, I did get my real estate license a couple years ago, back in 19, um, because I got diagnosed with, um, uh, rotator cuff tear, 80, 85%. And my doctor's like, you know, that's hanging on by a thread. And I was like, okay. And, um, so he said, you just can't do what you've been doing for 30 years. So, um, I had to make a little bit of a lifestyle change then by, you know, I just couldn't clean stalls and throw, you know, saddles over my head anymore because all that repetition is pretty much what wore my shoulder out, including arthritis in the ball joint. So um, I ended up, I got with Lance Graves and found out where he got some stem cell done in his shoulder. And I went and did that as well. And it's really helped um, regenerate it. And um, so I'm just trying to preserve myself, you know, until maybe one day I can get surgery to fix it all. But um, so as of right now, I 
kind of got my real estate license to supplement, you know, my training income. And that's kind of where I'm at today. And uh, got married to Mark Klein and we combined down here in Pilot Point. He has a business in Dallas. And so it was kind of like, you know, as far as he wanted to commute. So we built, uh, we bought 36 acres here in Pilot Point and we built a covered arena, the barn of my dreams, right? And then <laughs> now I have like very few horses, but I'm enjoying <laughs> it. And it's, I feel very blessed that I'm at this point, you just work all your life to get to certain places. And I feel like I'm at a place that I can finally rest and enjoy my horses. I'm glad you brought that up. I didn't know it was because of a shoulder injury. Um, but I think I was reading your article on the barrel racing report um, after your Glenwood win. But you had said that, that like you had kind of did, you decided to move into another avenue to also make money and you're able to enjoy it more. Yes. Do you think that you see that a lot in our industry where, you know, obviously trainers, they have to take in so many horses that it almost becomes like, it's not fun, but you've been able to scale back or do you, I mean, do you wish that you still had 15 horses a day to ride? You know, I feel like trainers in this industry are really any discipline people that, you know, train multiple horses, um, you have to have that passion, you know, to work that hard mm-hmm. and not make much money. <laughs> and I mean, I'm sure people from the outside looking in think that, you know, oh my gosh, she has like 20 head. Um, they think that you're just, you know, rolling in money. And honestly, it just rolls right out the door and overhead with feed, labor, Um, And then, you know, labor is a major issue, you know, um, nowadays to get people to keep working. So um, we most people that are in this industry do it because they love it. Um, But I I just physically could not keep doing it. And I feel like I needed that, though. And God has a way, right, of waking us up if we don't like adhere to his warnings. (laughs) And so that's kind of what happened to me. And I had to get to a place where it was like, okay, I'm going to have to make a change. I just, I had to say no. And it was very, very, very hard to say that because I always want to help other people, but I had to start putting my health and my marriage before the horses and my work. And that was a decision that I had to make. And it looks like it's paying off. It looks like you made the right decision. (laughs) Well, thank you. I mean, it helps that you have a horse like Stella that year, but. (laughs) Yes, yes, it does. (laughs) So tell us a little bit about your training style. I mean, when do you get on them? When do you take them to the pattern? What do you like to focus on? That type of stuff. Yeah. So um, I like to, like right now, I feel like I'm a little late, but I'm, this is just the way I do it. I I like to get my two-year-olds broke, you know, summer to fall, put about, you know, 60, 75 rides on them, give them a little break. Um, and then, you know, start them in winter, you know, uh, December, January, February, somewhere in there. And I just give many breaks to those. Like when you're at a maturity, that's when your other set of colts at home kind of get a break. 
And then when you get home from the futurity, then that horse gets a break and you camp on your other one. So that's kind of how I've always had to do it. Um, and then uh, my three-year-olds, you know, I just uh, really, I, I mean, my whole training program is really reiterating basics, which is suppleness. I want them body broke. Um, I want to be able to move their shoulders, move their hips. Um, I'm just really big on doing that every time I throw my leg over one. If I'm going to get on and, you know, work my joints and, you know, my body as well, I'm going to make it count. They've got to either reiterate what they already know or ask them for something new. Okay. I like that. Do you ride, I mean, five days a week, seven days a week, or I know you give them time on and off depending on how you're traveling, but like, what's your weekly schedule look like? Yeah, that's a good question. Um, so it just depends on each horse, right? But for the most part, um, like Stella, for example, this week, right? Last week, she went to the spa while I went to Ohio and visited my family. So she got five days of therapy. I get her home Tuesday. I rode her Tuesday, Wednesday. Today, she's going to get some chiropractic work, probably not get rode. And then she'll get rode Friday, Saturday, Sunday off, and then, you know, ride Monday, exhibition next Tuesday, run Wednesday. That's kind of how her program would be. Um, but most of the time, I like to ride two to three days in a row and then give them a day off and then ride again. And that's how I like to do that, it. Like when I get on, I don't overtrain. I don't drill one. I don't get them like lathering stupid hot. I really just get on 10, 15, maybe 20 minutes. That's it. I, I think horses, you know, can get bored quick. And I think that you could overtrain. Uh, I mean, you just learn over years of experience, you know, when to quit. And I try to find a really good quitting spot when they've done everything I've asked. And then I just get off and then they get to be a horse. But when I'm on their back, like I expect them to do everything I ask. I like it. That's how I like to approach it too. A couple of days on a day off and I am not on them long. Yes. Yeah. Do you approach it differently if you're like on Stella and just conditioning or do you, you know, kind of ride her around the pattern or like on your finished horses, do you ride them any differently than you do your Colts? I really don't. Um, I, I honestly, probably almost every time I ride Stella, she's either, she's always trotted through once or twice. If she does all three barrels perfect the first time, that's it. If she had like a little bobble over here or over there, I'll go through again until she does all three perfect and then I quit. Sometimes okay. I like, like right now I'm, she's been on a break. So like, I'm going to gradually build her up. So it started out with trotting and then I'll end up loping, just slow loping, but that's pretty much the most I'll do, but I will build one to make the next run. And sometimes when I do that, I will add like some speed in like just a big circle to just add the con speed control at home, preparing for the next run. Okay, that makes sense. 
And how do you approach your exhibitions? We always get a lot of questions and I always like to know how people focus on exhibitions when you start adding speed, that type of stuff. Yeah, that's a good question. And I'm sure everybody has, you know, their own way of doing it. Um, I like to get mine, you know, where they're like, um, of course, I'm like kind of a little anal about like everything being perfect. <laughs> um, so I like to have everything like really, really broke at home and like loping and just probably cruising, which I would say like three quarter speed, no pressure, but you know, not, it's more than a lope at home. And then, you know, depending on the horse, some horses are just really spooky and look at everything and they just require more. And then there's some that's like all business and they don't look around when they get somewhere, they just hone in on the barrels and they go to work. So just that kind of depends on the horse. But my routine is like, like now, you know, um, August, September, I start you know, hauling them to the weekly deal. Um, and I will get three exhibitions. I rarely get four. And I usually take my first one, you know, to either trot or slow lope correctly through. And then my second one, I ask them for wherever they have been. Um, and then the, the last one I'll use to either correct or if I have, if they messed up in the second exhibition at the run, then I'll use that for a run as well. I figure I can okay. do all my slow work at home. That's kind of what that's for. Um, and then I use exhibitions, you know, to step my horses up. And so every time I, every week that I go, I will ask for just a little bit more. If they fail, then I'll go back home and do slow work and get control at the you know, the speed where behind that. <laughs> so I always okay. go back, you know, a gate if they failed. So, and then I just build up for the next run. Okay. And that probably leads to them having a lot of confidence too. Yes. I mean, I want them to know that when we go away from the house, like it's, it's time to work. And, um, but I, you can't ask for it all at once. I feel like it's like a gradual thing that you ask for just a little bit more than you did last week. If they handle it, great, but you still have all week to go back home and mentally get them, you know, quiet, relaxed again in case, you know, they get anxious, you know, away from home. So I try to do the same routine that I do at home when I am away. So there's no surprises. I like that. So one question that I like to ask, and it's, you know, I know every horse is its own horse, but what is like one of the hardest horses that you've had to train that's really tested you? Cause those generally end up being the ones that teach us the most. Yeah, that's a good question. Um, I mean, I've been really fortunate to ride a lot of good horses. Um, but the one that comes to mind that I feel like I had the most struggle with during his fraternity year was Bahama bully. And he, after that year though, became one of the most automatic horses that I've probably made. Stella's kind of stepping up into those shoes right now, but, um, 
Bahama was, um, he was a bully bullion. I rode quite a few of those, um, in the beginning of my career. And, you know, they, they were known to be tough, um, a little bit, um, stiff, but really, really tough, um, like body wise. I mean, like once you got one trained and to that point, like, I felt like they would all like be really solid, really solid. But Anyway, during that maturity year, um, I, I think I was fourth on him at the slot race, won like 10,000. I was so excited. And then um, we go, I don't know, to some of those early spring maturities. He did pretty good, like at the speed horses. And then when we get to Fort Smith, he like, I don't know, I just, he wasn't working. And I thought, I told the owner, Ken Pruitt, I said, I, I think we need to put someone else on him. I, I'm not doing him justice. I don't feel like I'm getting accomplished. Like, you know, he was falling apart on me. He was starting to like throw his head up and kind of come off the turn. And um, so anyway, that's what we did. We asked Troy if he would jockey him. And of course he was like, heck yeah. And then we're out in the warm up pen and everybody's on the fence watching this one, right? <laughs> this pair combo. And I mean that he lays it down and I was like, oh boy, yep, it's me. And I'm going, oh, no. <laughs> and then so he runs him in the trials and he did exactly what he did with me. And I was like, well, I guess we had to, you know, prove that it was, you know, something in the arena. So that was causing him not to work. But anyway, after Fort Smith, usually that's when we would give all of our colts a break. Right. Well, I was determined to take this horse home and make him a winner. And so I did. I spent the summer and I put like a brow band on him. And then I put that one little metal nose bit on him. And ever since then, he was rock solid. But I mean, I, I spent probably 60 days at home that summer, just working through the issues, trying to figure it out. And I, we did. And I think I ended up winning like 65,000 on that horse. And we sold him as a five-year-old at San, like right after San Antonio Rodeo. He placed in three of the rounds and was sitting third in the average when the short round came around. And he had just turned five. So that's when Edwin bought him. And he's like set, an arena, set arena records with him and been one of his best and favorite horses. So, See, that's why I like asking that question because... I don't think a lot of people realize how often that trainers are like, all right, somebody else has got to try it. Like I need help. It's not, it's not working for me. Like, you know, I need another set of eyes. And then not all of them are just rock stars right off the bat. Nope. And I really feel like, you know, when you're training, you have so much desire for that horse to be successful for that owner that most of us will just do whatever it takes to get that done. And if we have to reach out to our colleagues, which I have to say, everybody in our industry, truly, if you ask them for help, would be more than happy to help anybody, even if you're another trainer. That's what I love about our industry is it's, it's very helpful. I know some people think that some people aren't approachable, but most of the time they're probably just zoned in on, you know, the work and, you know, what they need to do while they're there. But I promise you 
95% of us are more than happy to help someone else when they need it. Yeah. So cool. And, you know, it's, we, we've talked about it before on the podcast, you know, people being like, oh my gosh, you know, there's Jolie and she's warming up. And it's like, yeah, but if you, if you ask Jolie to question at the stalls, like she would, she would tell you, she would talk to you. Absolutely. They're superheroes, but they're still regular people too. Yes, absolutely. So I also wanted to ask, you know, obviously you train your own horses, but you have your own barrel saddle line, your own bit line. How did your tack line come to play? Well, that's a great question. Um, Well, being a a trainer, right, with multiple uh, horses um, and all shapes and sizes, of course, um, I wanted to create products that was number one, the most comfortable for my animal. I always put myself second. I always like put myself in my horse's shoes and think about, you know, what they need and what would be comfortable. So, um, I had this saddle, like, I don't know, it was 20 years ago. It was like a Billy cook and it just fit everything. I just, I couldn't believe it. Right. And so this was probably 12, 15 years ago, maybe, but Cecil Phillips, I saw him at Fort Smith and I was picking his brain and I said, look, I've got this saddle that like fits everything. I said, I want to pull the tree out and see what it is. And then I want to, you know, modify it, do whatever we need to do to make it my own tree. And so that's what he did. He took it home. He's like, well, I'm kind of semi, you know, he's pretty much retired, but he was nice and took it home and he made me a wooden tree. We talked about, it was a Buster Welch cutting tree is what was in the saddle. And the bars were flared in the back, but not in the front. And so that's what we ended up doing is we flared the bars in the front and the back. And it just made it to where it would just fit everything and it didn't pinch down on your shoulders. It didn't pinch in the withers or in the loins. So I ended up my standard size trees, like six and three quarters wide. And then um, I have a wide fit, which is seven inches. And so you wouldn't think quarter inch makes a difference, but it does. But that's kind of how my saddles came about and then I found a great uh, manufacturer here in Texas um, that you know uses great leather products every saddles like custom made it's not a factory cookie cutter so I'm real and you can like design your saddle however you want we can make it happen um, so I ha- I'm, I'm just now starting to kind of really focus on marketing my products So it was a great question. Thank you for asking. Um, And then my bits, um, I actually went to one of um, Dave Elliott's clinics in Arizona, like back in 2011 was the first year I ever went there and met him. And I thought he was a genius. I mean, he knew a lot about the horse's anatomy and how the bits work. And so I asked him if he would help collaborate a line for me and you know, he was kind of, you know, pretty busy. And he said, you know, I'll, I'll make bits for you wholesale, right? And you can sell them or do whatever you want. So I think we built like seven bits. And we rocked along for about three years. And then um, it just kind of got harder to get them, you know, because his business was 
um, growing and mine was too. And so I ended up going with a different manufacturer in the United States, which was easier to kind of get and ship. So that's kind of where I'm at now with those. Um, and yeah, and then I developed a saddle pad as well. Um, oh, okay. I used to be a CSI dealer and loved their concept. Um, but I knew that I needed to go in a more lighter weight direction for what we were doing in our industry. Cause it seemed like people were like, okay, I'm not wearing a breast collar anymore. And everything was all based on weight for a little while. And so I ended up developing my pad. Um, and when I went to do the research on what materials, the English industry had just pretty much done all the work already. And so um, if you notice, they won't put anything other than fleece or cotton on their horse's back. And the reason being is wool breaks down tissue. So that's why I have a fleece pad and I put canvas as the top material because it's very breathable and extremely light. And I did one stitch down the middle so it wouldn't press on the spine. And then I also created a wither contoured wither where it's like cut out off of the wither so you never have to get on or off and readjust your saddle before a run so that's kind of how all my tagline came about that's very interesting and something that I wouldn't think about um you know I've I wrote English like a year when I was growing up I I couldn't remember anything about it but looking at some of their stuff I've always wondered why it's so different and I don't even know why but like I use um my boots on my horses I use like the cross-country boots that the English riders use uh-huh because they're hard shell and I feel like you know that that truly protects a leg versus you know just kind of support a little bit but that's interesting I've always wondered about the fleece and you know kind of taking stuff from different industries I like that yeah, I, I thought it was interesting, too, because I wanted to make sure that, you know, the materials I used was the best for my horse. And I guess they did studies, you know, on wool, how, um, you know, every time your horse walks, moves, it's constantly rubbing and it starts out, you know, with the hair loss. And then but at the end of the day, it's gradually um breaking down tissue. And so I always wondered why horses backs were so sore, you know, especially in the loins, they would always, most of the time say it was ill saddle fit, but a lot of it is material that's just constantly being rubbed on your horse's back. So yeah, huh. I thought it was interesting. So I'm going to have to go look at your website. <laughs> I'm going to have to go try out yeah. one of those saddle pads. Yeah. Um, I tell you, it's, um, it's hard. You can't even hardly there's, I think CSI might be the only pad made in the United States of America. Every other pad, every pad is made overseas. So with COVID it's kind of been a little issue to keep them in stock. So I have a with shipment that, like, coming everything. in actually this at the end, by the end of this month. So. Okay. Awesome. Yeah.
Thanks for tuning in. If you're enjoying the interview with Sharon, head on over to patreon.com and search The Money Barrel. For just $5 a month, you'll gain immediate access to extended episodes with season two guests like Sharon, Jordan Bassett-Kircher, Andre Quelo, and more. Don't forget to check out K&L Barrel Horses for your stallion needs in 2022. All right, run fast, be safe, and we'll see you soon.